to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having psychiatric illness and better inform the general public about mental health-related issues. And this edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for initial airing on January the 11th, 2017. And uh, even though I've been doing this podcast since, uh, I think, 2005, if I'm not mistaken, uh, so far the year started off with my continuing with themes that I've focused on throughout that time. And uh, this week will be no different. Uh, In fact, I'm going to start this week's podcast with an article that relates to uh, veterans and military's mental health issues, uh, a subject that regular and longtime listeners will know is near and dear to my heart. Uh, stemming from my time working in Columbus, Georgia, and working with a lot of families coming off post from Fort Benning for psychiatric treatment. It turns out that right here in Atlanta, we have an effort that is helping to lead the fight against suicide crisis in the military. There is a call center which is key to the plan to improve responses to at-risk veterans. Uh, There is a Veterans Administration crisis hotline. Um, I'll give it out a couple of times. It's 800-273-8255. And then you just press 1. It's, again, 800-273-8255. It operates 24-7, and you can also text the crisis line by texting 838255. Again, it texts to 838255. There's also live chat available uh, through the web. The crisis line website is veteranscrisisline.net. Again, that's Veterans Crisis Line, all strung together, dot net. More than a decade of war, an aging Vietnam-era population, and the VA's own breakdowns, which are well documented, especially here in the Atlanta metro area, I'm sorry to say, contribute to a staggering statistic that points to a dire crisis for the nation's veterans. 
Very, very sadly, some 20 veterans kill themselves each day. Atlanta is now playing a major role in the United States Department of Veterans Affairs revamped effort to end this crisis after a new call center for the National Veterans Crisis Hotline opened in DeKalb County in October, one of two facilities of its kind in the country. Officials are scheduled to dedicate the new center uh, that was supposed to have happened uh, back in mid-December. The first facility in upstate New York was the subject of a documentary film, Crisis Hotline, Veterans Press One, that won an Oscar in 2015 after it chronicled efforts of responders to talk veterans back from the edge of despair and get them help. But government auditors and other reports have criticized the hotline for significant failures, including delayed answer times, calls that roll to voicemail, that's inexcusable if you ask me, and lacks employee performance. Last month, or actually as I'm reading this article to you that would have been in November, President Barack Obama signed a new law to bring more oversight to the hotline and improve response times for veterans in crisis. The Atlanta Call Center is central to this plan, but the question remains, can it put a dent in what has become a deadly epidemic affecting thousands of veterans and their families each year? We're convinced that what we're doing at the crisis line is going to make a difference, said Matt Itushis, the Veterans Health Administration Acting Executive Director for Member Services, whose duties include overseeing the crisis line's performance. He said, we are saving and changing lives. The problem for Itudis and the VA is that they haven't been tracking the effectiveness and progress of the crisis line through the collection of reliable data. They can't say how many lives they've saved or lost to suicide after veterans reached out for help. The Crisis Line's website says it has answered more than 2.5 million calls and has dispatched emergency services to 66,000 callers in crisis since it opened the Canandaigua, New York call center nine years ago. But over time, a dramatic increase in call volume has stretched the hotline's ability to keep up. Last year, the hotline received more than 500,000 calls compared to about 10,000 calls in its first year. Uh, that would refer to 2015 compared to uh, 2016. And the demand forced the VA to rely on backup call centers run by private contractors to handle the overflow. And those private call centers too often haven't done the job. A VA Inspector General's report in February found callers sometimes went to voicemail or experienced delays. Some callers had to wait so long they hung up. Can you imagine being in crisis and being on the verge of suicide and you have to wait on hold or get turned over to voicemail? 
First reported by the paper USA Today, the emails by Greg Hughes, who resigned from directing the crisis line in June, said the center routinely had staff who left early or spent little time on the phone. And he suggested that half the hotline staff was underperforming. He wrote in a May 13 email, if we continue to roll over calls because we have staff that are not making an honest effort, then we are failing in our mission. I would agree. Etuda said he is searching for a new permanent director of the hotline, and that person may be stationed in Atlanta. He said, this is my number one priority. It is not something we're going to take our eye off the ball. United States Senator Johnny Isaacson, Republican from Georgia, who chairs the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, co-wrote a letter in October with other senators expressing concern about the epidemic level of veteran suicides. In a letter to VA Secretary Robert McDonald, he called the failures of the crisis line unacceptable and disingenuous to veterans, especially by putting them on hold or sending them to an answering machine after they called in need of immediate help. The opening of this new center should go a long way to see that it doesn't happen, Isaacson uh, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it doesn't, we're going to keep funding it until it does. No call by a veteran in crisis should ever go unanswered, period. I heartily agree. Etudis acknowledges the past problems that took place before he assumed control of the enrollment office in Atlanta. He said the new hotline call center is already having an impact in reducing the number of calls rolling over. Earlier this month, the hotline for the first time reduced the rollover rate on certain days to below 10%, a dramatic drop from the 45 to 50% of the past. He said the goal is to reach 0% rollover rate by the end of December. Uh, the VA has temporarily brought in staff to Atlanta from the call center in New York to help train the new workforce, which will eventually exceed 300 people. Carolina Roy, a veteran who served in Afghanistan and appeared in the documentary about the New York call center, is one of the responders who has been offering hands-on training. A responder can take 20 calls a shift. Some callers may have a gun, or they've slit their wrists, or taken medication in an attempt to end their lives. Some may just want someone to listen, or they may need help getting looped into the VA system. In emergency cases, the hotline staff will dispatch local emergency responders to the person's residence. It is a heavy day, Roy said. You get ready for a day. You prepare yourself for helping veterans. For a lot of us, it's something we love to do. New call responders, such as Howard Hill, are on the front line in Atlanta. Hill, a former Marine, is among the more, 80, more than 80 staff already at work in the Atlanta call center. 
Hill, who has a master's in mental health, had been working with homeless veterans in Atlanta before getting hired by the call center in September. After undergoing three weeks of classroom training and then several weeks of hands-on training with people like Roy, he started taking calls last month. He said, having served in the Marines, he isn't alarmed when someone says they have a gun. He remains calm, listens, and tries to connect with them over the phone. You just talk to them, he said. You ask them to put it away, take out the magazine. Now, we're going to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll finish up the article about the Atlanta Suicide Crisis Center and uh, also put this in some context in light of events that took place a few days ago at an airport in Florida. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a new Veterans Crisis Hotline call center in Atlanta, Georgia. And the article was quoting uh, a veteran uh, who is being trained to take calls at this call center, um, uh, Howard Hill, and he went on to say, uh, he said, the work at the hotline makes him feel like his life has come full circle. Uh, He's 49 now. When he was a young Marine at age 19, his roommate ended his own life. At the time, he didn't recognize the signs, but now with his training and education, he can help those who are struggling. The calls can be tense, some lasting hours, but the work never gets him down. He said, I feel like I'm having a great impact. When I leave here, I feel like I've saved some lives. Every day, I feel great when I leave here, This job has given me a chance to help veterans. 
Well, it's really good news to hear that another call center is being set up and getting up and running. Uh, but really thinking about it for all of our veterans and trying to make an effort to stem the tide of 20 veteran suicides a day, don't we really need more than two of these call centers to take all these calls? Um, you know, the one in upstate New York, the one here in Atlanta, that doesn't seem like enough. Uh, shouldn't it be the case that if a veteran in that state of mind calls, then they shouldn't have to wait at all, that someone should just pick up right away and start talking them down from whatever uh, crisis they're in. And that brings me to what just happened a matter of days ago at the airport in Fort Lauderdale, uh, where Esteban Santiago, a veteran of the Iraq conflict, uh, shot, um, shot up the area baggage claim, uh, killed several people, wounded several more. He went to an FBI office in November uh, complaining of hearing voices. Now, the FBI office, um, granted, not on the first line of helping uh, mentally ill veterans, but they did refer him for a mental health evaluation. Um, I don't know the details of where, but apparently he was just let go after several days and eventually was able to get back his weapon. I mean, what is wrong here that even after the FBI tried to do the right thing, the system failed this man? Uh, I can't help but think that, you know, what could have happened if this uh, VA crisis hotline were better known and that somehow or another uh, Santiago had heard of it and called it and said, hey, I'm hearing voices, something isn't right. Uh, could this have ended better? Uh, could this have not happened, actually, in the first place? Um, you know, of course, we'll never know. Um, it's whenever these tragedies happen, it's always easy to look after the fact at mistakes that were made, things that it could have been done better. Uh, but again, I think it points out there are system systemic failures in a situation like this. When a veteran who is traumatized and mentally ill from seeing their buddies blown up in Iraq as Santiago was, uh, you know, tries to get help but doesn't get the proper help that they need and uh, tragedy ensues. Uh, we'll probably learn more um, as information comes out about what the authorities are able to learn from Santiago and do more research about what happened to him after he made that complaint at the FBI field office. Well, moving on to another very important topical issue that relates to mental health. Uh, as we talked about last year, uh, many more states approved medical use and decriminalized recreational use of marijuana, uh, something that I'm against because of the detrimental effects that marijuana has on brain function, brain development, uh, and even we talked last week about how Pregnant women are smoking pot more. 
Uh, here's an article I want to bring to you about how there are causal links that have been found between cannabis and schizophrenia. This is new evidence. And again, this is not just associations, but these are causal links, meaning the researchers are, are making the claim that they have documented the cannabis will have an effect on the illness, schizophrenia. Let's, let's find out how. People who have a greater risk of developing schizophrenia are more likely to try cannabis, according to the new research, which also found a causal link between trying the drug and an increased risk of having schizophrenia. The study comes to us from the University of Bristol, and it comes on the back of public health warnings issued earlier uh, this past year by scientists who voiced concerns about the increased risk of psychosis for vulnerable people who use marijuana. Those warnings followed evidence to suggest an increased use of particularly high-potency strains of cannabis among young people. However, experts cautioned that the risks should not be overstated given the need for greater research into links between mental health and illicit drugs. This latest study from Bristol's School of Experimental Psychology sheds fresh light on the issue while still cautioning that the results ought to be considered in the wider context of other contributing factors of mental health. While some evidence was found to support hypotheses that cannabis use is a contributory factor in increasing the risk of schizophrenia, the researchers were surprised to find stronger evidence that the opposite was also likely. This adds weight to the idea that the drug may be used as a form of self-medication. The evidence suggested that schizophrenia risk predicts the likelihood of trying cannabis. However, the relationship could operate in both directions. The results don't really allow accurately predicting the size of the effect. They're more about providing evidence that the relationship is actually causal rather than the result of confounding or common risk factors. The study examined publicly available data from genome-wide association studies um, and using a form of instrumental variable analysis using genetic variants that predict either cannabis use or the risk of developing schizophrenia. The results use a novel method to attempt to untangle the association between cannabis and schizophrenia. And while they find stronger evidence that schizophrenia predicts cannabis use rather than the other way around, it doesn't rule out a causal risk of cannabis use on schizophrenia. What would be interesting would be digging deeper into the potential subpopulations of cannabis users who may be at greater risk and getting a better handle on the impact of heavy cannabis use. 
In the study, they could only look at the initiation of cannabis use. What would really help progress this research is to use the genetic variants that predict heaviness of cannabis use, as it seems that heavy cannabis use is most strongly associated with the risk of schizophrenia. Once genetic variants are identified that predict heaviness of cannabis use, they'll be able to do that. Well, but just more evidence of the negative mental health impact of marijuana. And uh, certainly, you know, uh, there's more and more of this coming out, but it does not seem to be stemming the tide of those who would uh, further support decriminalizing the recreational use of it and increasing the availability of uh, medical use of it as far as expanding uh, the numbers of conditions that uh, would allow the legal use of medical cannabis. Now, I have also talked on this podcast before about how some scientists, including psychiatrists, have advocated the use of hallucinogens to treat mental health disorders. And more recently, we talked about a study in cancer patients, in hospitalized cancer patients, who were given psilocybin, the main hallucinogenic ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms. And this really tremendously upsets me because these chemicals induce a psychotic state in the user and they're known to do uh, physical damage to pathways in the brain, uh, direct brain cell damage and genetic damage to brain cells uh, so that uh, scientists would advocate treating patients with them uh, to me is, is beyond incredible. And uh, so I found this article where some researchers, gratefully, in my opinion, urge caution around psilocybin use. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see exactly what they say. This comes to us from uh, Johns Hopkins University. In a survey of almost 2,000 people who said they had had a past negative experience when taking psilocybin-containing magic mushrooms, Johns Hopkins researchers say that more than 10% believed their worst bad trip had put themselves or others in harm's way, and a substantial majority called their most distressing episode one of the top biggest challenges of their lives. Despite the difficulty, however, most of the respondents still reported the experience to be meaningful or worthwhile, with half of these positive responses claiming it as one of the top most valuable experiences in their life. All right, a lot to digest there. We'll do that and have other mental health news after this next break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. 
Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now we're talking about a study done by Johns Hopkins researchers regarding patients' experiences with psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. This study was published on December the 1st in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Researchers cautioned that their survey results don't apply to all psilocybin mushroom use since this questionnaire they administered wasn't designed to assess good trip experiences, uh, only those who had had bad trips. And the survey wasn't designed to determine how often bad trips occur. Uh, Roland Griffiths, a psychopharmacologist and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, has spent more than 15 years conducting studies of psilocybin's capacity to produce profound mystical-type experiences to treat psychological anxiety and depression and to aid in smoking cessation. So he is obviously uh, a proponent of it. and He was quoted as saying, considering both the negative effects and the positive outcomes that respondents sometimes reported, the survey results confirm our view that neither users nor researchers can be cavalier about the risks associated with psilocybin. Psilocybin and use of other hallucinogens became popular in the United States in the 1960s due to charismatic proponents who suggested anecdotally 
that users would experience profound psychological insights and benefits. But drugs such as psilocybin and LSD were banned for supposed safety reasons shortly thereafter in the 1970s without much scientific evidence about risks or benefits. I would tend to differ with that, but let's read on. In recent years, Dr. Griffiths and his team have conducted more than a dozen studies confirming some of those benefits. The current study was designed to shed light on the impact of so-called bad trips. For this new survey, Griffith's team used advertisements on social media platforms and email invitations to recruit people who self-reported a difficult or challenging experience while taking psilocybin mushrooms. The survey took an hour to complete and included three questionnaires. The hallucinogen rating scale, the mystical experience questionnaire developed by Griffiths and colleagues in 2006, and parts of the 5D altered states of consciousness questionnaire. That you didn't know there were rating scales like those out there, did you? Yeah, I certainly didn't. Participants were asked in the survey to focus only on their worst bad trip experience and then to report about the dose of psilocybin they took, the environment in which the experience occurred, how long it lasted, and strategies available and used to stop this negative experience and any unwanted consequences. I think as far as asking for a self-report of symptoms, there is um, a lot of room for error in a survey like that. And also asking people to quantify the dose of psilocybin they took is um, fraught with error and extremely inexact. Based on the, let's see, they had almost 2,000 completed surveys. 78% of the respondents were men, 89% were white, and 51% had college or graduate degrees. And 66% were from the United States. On average, the survey participants were 30 years old at the time of the survey and 23 years old at the time of their bad trips, with 93% responding that they used psilocybin more than two times. So as far as the data that assessed each respondent's absolute worst bad trip, 10.7% of the respondents said they put themselves or others at risk for physical harm during their bad trip. Some 2.6% said they acted aggressively or violently, and 2.7% said they sought medical help. Five of the participants with self-reported pre-existing anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts attempted suicide while on the drug during their worst bad trip, which the researchers say is indicative of requiring a supportive and safe environment during use, like those conditions used in ongoing research studies. However, six people reported that their suicidal thoughts disappeared 
after their experience on their worst bad trip, the latter result coinciding with a recent study published by Griffiths showing the antidepressive properties of psilocybin in cancer patients. That's the study I was telling you about that we've talked about in a previous uh, podcast. Well, I just want to pause here before we go over the rest of the article. It's obvious this Dr. Griffiths has a very pro-psilocybin agenda, and to me it's very frightening to hear that even a small percentage of these patients during their uh, worst bad trip had thoughts of suicide, could have been a danger to themselves or others. That certainly calls into question the idea of using this to treat depression in cancer patients, as Dr. Griffiths has promulgated. Still, he said, a third of the participants said their experience was among the top five most meaningful, and a third ranked it in the top five most spiritually significant experiences of their lives. Um, That sounds great, but is it worth the risks? 62% of participants said the experience was among the top 10 most difficult ones in their lifetime. That's almost two-thirds. 39% listed it in their top five most difficult experiences, and 11% listed it as their single most difficult experience. All of that hardly a ringing endorsement. And uh, Griffiths was quoted as saying, the counterintuitive finding that extremely difficult experiences can sometimes also be very meaningful experiences is consistent with what we see in our studies with psilocybin. That resolution of a difficult experience, sometimes described as catharsis, often results in positive personal meaning or spiritual significance. I couldn't agree more, but is it necessary to expose someone to a toxic psychosis-inducing hallucinogen in order to bring that about? I hardly think so. In all of Griffith's clinical research, people given psilocybin are provided a safe, comfortable space with trained experts to offer support to participants. He says, throughout these carefully managed studies, the incidence of risky behaviors or enduring psychological problems has been extremely low, We are vigilant in screening out volunteers who may not be suited to receive psilocybin, and we mentally prepare study participants before their psilocybin sessions. Great. Um, So they provide this safe, warm, supportive environment. I'm sure they have them sign copious consent forms. But is all that going to prevent a very uh, potentially devastatingly disturbing bad trip? And what about flashbacks? Uh, So fine, they have this wonderfully warm, supportive, helpful environment to prevent or minimize the impact of bad trips. But what about when they go home? Uh, What if they have a a flashback to the bad trip later on? They're not in that environment, and they re-experience these thoughts of suicide. I just don't see how this can be justified ethically or scientifically. Uh, Again, Griffiths is quoted as saying, Cultures that have long used psilocybin mushrooms for healing or religious purposes have recognized their potential dangers and have developed corresponding safeguards. They don't give the mushrooms to just anyone, anytime, 
without a contained setting and supportive, skillful monitoring. Uh, the article doesn't mention, but he's no doubt referring to uh, certain Native American tribes. The researchers say that survey studies like this one uh, rely on self-reporting that cannot be objectively substantiated, as I mentioned before, and that additional scientifically rigorous studies are needed to better understand the risks and potential benefits of using hallucinogenic drugs. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Survey on Drug Use and Health, about 22.9 million people, or 8.7% of Americans, reported prior use of psilocybin. While not without behavioral or psychological risks, psilocybin is not regarded as addictive or as toxic to the brain, liver, or other organs. Uh, I assume they mean compared to other substances. Um, I would say that's true. It's very rare to see someone addicted to it, although uh, rarely will come across someone who uses it. Uh, very frequently and excessively and habitually, but that's that I have to admit is the exception, not the rule. Uh, nonetheless, I think that uh, it, it still is shocking to me that a respected institution such as Johns Hopkins is allowing research like this to proceed. Uh, I sincerely hope that none of Dr. Griffith's subjects commit suicide or uh, act out violently and cause harm to someone else as a result of this research. And uh, I would strongly advocate for it to be stopped as potentially exposing patients in the studies to psychological and neurochemical torture. Uh, I know that sounds like a strong accusation, but uh, when, you, when you're giving someone something that may induce a bad trip, and all the psychological pain that uh, entails, uh, I don't think it's exaggeration to label it um, as uh, torture and uh, giving someone this toxic chemical to induce this adverse psychological state. Well, <clears throat> all right, I'll get down off my soapbox about that for a moment. We do have to take another break, and then when we come back, We'll talk about an article relating to links between violence and mental illness. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be back after this break. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news next on tonight's podcast. A study identifies key indicators linking violence and mental illness. Now, uh, this is, of course, uh, sadly... A timely issue given that we just had another mass shooting committed by a mentally ill person and a mentally ill veteran, no less. Uh, but it also uh, strikes at the core mission of my podcast to try to reduce the stigma associated with mental illness. And uh, this is unfortunately an incident that adds to that stigma that the seriously mentally ill are more prone to violence uh, as a result. Uh, that isn't the case. But let's see what this research, this new research from North Carolina State University and RTI International and Arizona State University and Duke University Medical Center have to uh, tell us. It finds that a host of factors that are associated with subsequent risk of adults with mental illness becoming victims or perpetrators of violence. The work highlights the importance of interventions to treat mental health problems in order to reduce community violence and instances of mental health crises. This work builds on an earlier study that found almost one-third of adults with mental illness are likely to be victims of violence within a six-month period. And in this study, they addressed two fundamental questions. If someone is victimized, is he or she more likely to become violent? And if someone is violent is he or she more likely to be victimized? And the answer is yes to both questions. And this reminds me of research into bullying and victimization in children, uh, which found, uh, somewhat surprisingly, when the findings first came out, that uh, when children are bullied, 
they're more likely to become both, uh, both uh, victimized by and uh, become bulliers themselves. Now, this research that we're talking about analyzed data from a database of almost 3,500 adults with mental illnesses who had answered questions about both committing violence and being victims of violence. The database drew from four earlier studies that focused on issues ranging from antipsychotic medications to treatment approaches. Those studies had different research goals, but all asked identical questions related to violence and victimization. For this study, the researchers used a baseline assessment of each study participant's mental health and violence history as a starting point, and then tracked the data on each participant for up to 36 months. Specifically, the researchers assessed each individual's homelessness, inpatient mental health treatment, in other words, hospitalizations, psychological symptoms of mental illness, substance abuse, and as victims or perpetrators of violence. The researchers evaluated all of these items as both indicators and outcomes, that is, as both causes and effects. And they found that all of these indicators mattered, but often in different ways. For example, drug use was a leading indicator of committing violence, while alcohol use was a leading indicator of being a victim of violence. Past research that I have read has shown that alcohol and drug abuse were both risk factors for being violent. However, the researchers also found that one particular category of psychological symptoms was also closely associated with violence, affective symptoms. By affect, we're talking about symptoms including depression, anxiety, and poor impulse control. The more pronounced these affective symptoms were, the more likely someone was to both commit violence and be a victim of violence. This is particularly important because good practices already exist for how to help people, such as therapeutic interventions or medication. And by treating people who are exhibiting these symptoms, we could reduce violence. Just treating drug or alcohol use, which is what happens in many cases, isn't enough. We need to treat the underlying mental illness that is associated with these affective symptoms. The research also highlighted how one violent event could cascade over time. For example, on average, the researchers found that one event in which a person was a victim of violence triggered seven other effects, such as psychological symptoms, homelessness, and becoming perpetrators of violence. Those seven effects, on average, triggered an additional 39 additional effects. It's a complex series of interactions that spirals over time, exacerbating substance abuse, mental health problems, and violent behavior. The results tell us that we need to evaluate 
how we treat adults with severe mental illness. No kidding, absolutely we do. We need to treat them all together as opposed to letting them fall through the cracks, uh, again, as what happened with the Fort Lauderdale airport shooter. Investing in community-based mental health treatment programs would significantly reduce violent events in this population, according to one of the researchers. That would be more effective and efficient than waiting for people to either show up at emergency rooms in the midst of a mental health crisis or become involved in the legal system as either victims or perpetrators of violence. We have treatments for all these problems. We just need to make them available to the people that need them. Absolutely. But the promise of community-based mental health treatment programs that he refers to, uh, that's a bit, that's been an unfulfilled promise since the 1960s when uh, the onset of more effective psychiatric drugs began the process of deinstitutionalization, emptying out of uh, state psychiatric hospitals where people were essentially warehoused for decades, if not their entire lives. And, you know, this is one of the promises of the Kennedy administration that was never fulfilled. So um, you still to this day have a problem of chronically mentally ill people who need more treatment than they're getting, but uh, certainly there aren't the big hospitals uh, anymore, and there definitely are not the uh, smaller, more community-based centers that were supposed to help replace them either. So unfortunately, uh, until there are better systems in place, we're going to continue to have problems addressing these people's needs. Uh, mentally ill people will continue to be victims and perpetrators of violence, especially if uh, they have substance abuse problems. Well, it being just beginning of the new year, perhaps a lot of people are making resolutions to eat better, and here we are, uh, a follow-up study on the Mediterranean diet having lasting effects on brain health. A new study shows that older people who followed the Mediterranean diet retained more brain volume over a three-year period than those who didn't follow the diet as closely. In other words, how I interpret that is their brain didn't shrink as much. This was published on January 4th in the journal Neurology, and contrary to earlier studies, eating more fish and less meat wasn't necessarily related to changes in the brain. Now, the Mediterranean diet, if you're not familiar with it, includes large amounts of fruits, vegetables, olive oil, beans, cereal grains such as wheat and rice, moderate amounts of fish, dairy, and wine, and limited red meat and poultry. As we age, the brain shrinks and we lose brain cells, which can affect learning and memory. This study adds to the body of evidence that suggests the Mediterranean diet has a positive impact on brain health. Researchers gathered information on the eating habits of 967 Scottish people around age 70 who did not have dementia. Of those people, 562 had an MRI brain scan around age 73 to measure overall brain volume, gray matter brain volume, 
that's the cell bodies of the brain cells, in thickness of the cortex, which is the outer layer of the brain, again, where the cell bodies are. And from that group, 401 people then returned for a second MRI three years later at age 76. And then the measurements were compared to see how closely participants followed the Mediterranean diet. Their participants varied in how closely their dietary habits followed the Mediterranean diet principles. People who didn't follow as closely to the Mediterranean diet were more likely to have a higher loss of total brain volume over the three years than people who followed the diet more closely. The difference in diet explained half a percent of the variation in total brain volume, an effect that was half the size of that due to normal aging. The results were the same when researchers adjusted for other factors that could affect brain volume, such as age, education, and having diabetes or high blood pressure. There was no relationship between gray matter volume or cortical thickness and the Mediterranean diet. The researchers also found that fish and meat consumption were not related to the brain changes, which is contrary to earlier studies. It is possible that other components of the Mediterranean diet are responsible for this relationship or that it's due to all of the components in combination. Earlier studies looked at brain measurements at one point in time, whereas the current study followed people over time. In this study, eating habits were measured before brain volume was, which suggests that the diet may be able to provide long-term protection to the brain. But of course, larger studies are needed to confirm these results. Still, I think the results are encouraging enough to recommend the diet if you're concerned about brain health. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information I brought to you tonight and found it interesting as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And I sincerely hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.